our next song is called Justice in the Barrel. Of course, this is credited to uh, John Bon Jovi and Alan Silvestri. Uh, neither one of those voices, I'm guessing, are John. No, actually, one of them is Lou Diamond Phillips, uh, who plays Chavez uh, in the film. And the other is uh, Julia Wa- uh, Waters. Uh, also, Jeff Beck, Aldo Nova, and uh, Carrie Aronoff uh, featured on the intro. But uh, yeah, that's just the intro. The song proper hasn't really started yet. But Right. Uh, and I wanna, I'm going to play that. Uh, I normally only play a minute of the clip, but I want to play a little bit of the actual song. But I wanted to talk about this intro because this is, it, it's just so beautifully done. I mean, the voices are incredibly powerful. They feel very authentic uh, Native American Indian. And I just, especially the female voice, I absolutely love how intense her singing is. It's really great, and and it really kind of fits the character of Chavez because he's very much the uh, uh, the the indigenous voice uh, in the film. And uh, sp- I don't want to spoil the film too much, but they're, they're, you know when the indigenous person dies, uh, spirit riders come and, and take his soul away into the afterlife, and so that that's kind of the ethereal quality you get there. Uh, and uh, I won't tell you Chavez's fate uh, in the film, but there's certainly uh, an indigenous aspect, which again coming from these parts, uh, indigenous uh, folks around here. Are, are very prevalent. Uh, so uh, that, that was an aspect of the movie I really liked too. That it's not just uh, the outlaw aspect of it too, but you get kind of the, the indigenous uh, portion uh, of it as well through the Lou Diamond Phillips character. And it's really cool that he actually performed on the, uh, on the song too. He has such a strong voice. Yeah, he does. Yeah. Yeah. And of course he, uh, I, I'm pretty sure he sang on the La Bamba soundtrack. Wasn't that really him? No, that was uh, Los Lobos. Oh, that wasn't his voice in the movie. Nope, nope. That was really from Los Lobos. Yeah. Oh well, now that I know he could have sing, he could sing. He could <laughs> he could go back in time and do that. Uh, I'm going to play a little bit more of the song. I'm going to jump ahead a little bit, but um, yeah, I love that intro. It's so powerful, very soundtracky too. I will say, but also um, it kind of reminds me a little bit of Return to Innocence by Enigma. That um, you know, the, with the the Indian chant at the beginning, although less structured more just passionate and in the moment this is what i feel and i'm letting it out
I really like the guitar sound, that slight phase that it has on it. But overall, I, I don't think this song really did much for me outside of the intro. See, and, and, and this one kind of works for me because uh, Justice in the Barrel is the kind of justice, like you said, uh, lawless times, right? A lot of times you weren't going to jail, you're going to your grave. Uh, so I, I like the theme of it. Uh, the chorus, which we didn't get to, uh, I thought really worked well. So tell me who's going to save me or my father or my son when the only justice a man can see is the barrel of a loaded gun. And every once in a while you get that snare hit uh, from Aronoff. That almost sounds like a like a shotgun, right? Or like a pistol right. shot, which I, I thought really worked. I, I love that kind of uh, indigenous slash Native American feel to the, uh, you know, once the song starts, like you have the big gun blast, and then dun, 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 that's really indicative i you know i always kind of associate that with indigenous because um we hear indigenous uh, songs around here all the time whenever we dedicate something we bring in a, usually a, a tribe and, and they bring their their tribal drums they do a chant and it's oh, very okay. in that same rhythm so uh the, that kind of takes me back to that they maybe gets a little formulaic uh in the verses i i can certainly see that where it doesn't really stand out as like a blaze a blaze of glory would but mm-hmm. I, I always still uh, kind of dug this song especially the way it kind of kicked off it's it's nice to have a something break it up a little bit though you know the sound that we've been hearing on the album the song does deliver something a little bit different which is nice but I don't know I, I was just listening to it and kind of went eh. it's just it just didn't make me feel anything I mean there's some really powerful music and there are great little drum solos kind of Kenny going why did I bring all these drums to play on this album so I might as well do something with them uh, that was kind of a cool part but then I, I don't know it just after that when it got into the actual song I kind of just felt like. It's an album track for me. It would be, yeah. I think, again, thinking of it in terms of the film, this one mm. I think is a little bit stronger for me than a couple of songs that are coming up, uh, especially the next one. But mm. um, I, I can certainly see your point. For me, it just worked a little bit better. There was a couple more elements, and I don't think John is over-singing it, which he did mm. on, on side A on a lot of stuff. So I, I kind of appreciated right. that, too. It's also six minutes and 48 seconds. I don't know if it needed to be that long. That's including the big extended intro, however. Right. There, there's maybe a couple of trims you can make in there. Yeah, and I think that might have been part of it for me too. Is that it? Just it, it could have been trimmed down. I would say by at least a full minute, if not maybe a minute and a half, and and been a a better song for it. And again, like how do you produce an album like this when this isn't an album that's really been done before? What's your strategy? How do you decide anything because this is not a typical marketable product? Right. Like even sequencing. Do you sequence it as it would be in the film? Mm-hmm. Or, or do you sequence it like you would sequence a rock record? It's yeah, like you said, yeah. not really it hadn't really been done before. So right. And and I'm not saying the decisions that they made were bad because I think more likely, I think I probably would have gone chronological mm-hmm. than really looking at it as a companion to the movie as opposed to just an album that was inspired by. I think I still would have considered it attached to the film and probably tried to market it that way. So I probably would have gone chronologically, leading to the problem of having four ballads or three ballads and five songs which is exactly what they did i think because the uh, the john songs end with uh, dying ain't much of a living mm-hmm. which obviously be the the finale uh, of the film uh right. but justice in the barrel so this is this could be the section where i think chavez has like a knife fight and he talks about you know when it's his time to to meet his ancestors and, and all that and kind of you know you now you got pat garrett and his forces are, are kind of chasing him down they're on the run uh they're on the the blackbird trail uh mm-hmm. trying to get to safety in mexico so now, a little insight into how my crazy brain works. When I read the title, I'm thinking of more like a pickle barrel and them stuffing a body into a pickle barrel. And, you know, like that's how they're going to punish him. They're going to make him sit in there for a day or whatever. And 
that that was my initial idea of justice. It wasn't until quite like almost halfway through the song where I'm like, oh, they're talking about a gun barrel. There's literally a gunshot <laughs> kicking off the song. You, you, a- you thought the proper punishment in the Old West, well, what they did was they would take an outlaw and they would stick him in a pickle barrel and they'd say, you sit there until you've learned your lesson, young man. That's what you thought? Hey, I've lived in states where it's against the law to wear suspenders. <laughs> so, you know, where, where do you go from there? But no, the for some perfect. reason, it is probably because I've watched more horror movies than Westerns that that's just where my mind went. Okay. Well, uh, I understood the barrel to be the barrel of a gun, not a pickle barrel. Even a whiskey <laughs> barrel would have been better. Like, come on, man. Well, you're not going to punish a guy in a whiskey barrel. <laughs> He's not going to care. Death yard. Well, that's true. And who says there's whiskey in it? You're just stuck, sticking him in a barrel and what, throwing him over the Niagara Falls? I don't know. Oh, he's licking the wood because there's some in there. <laughs> there's an image. You need therapy, my friend. Well, that is not surprising. Uh, that's what happens when you spend a lot of time alone doing a ridiculous amount of podcasts, Corey. <laughs> uh, I, I was a little thrown by this title almost only because of the song Never Say Goodbye. This one's called Never Say Die. to say the uh the guitars on this kind of bug me um i don't know if it's just because they're the way they're harmonized or not but it sounds like something that would have played as a lead into beverly hills 90210 the, this whole song kind of bugs me because this is the one that sounds like it was an outtake from the new jersey album sessions like, mm. this is just a leftover bon jovi song this doesn't fit the the movie at all uh even lyrically like uh, because the whole time you know, we're, we're, we're younger and, you know, we're a tribe and we're together and we're a group. Everybody's trying to get away from Billy the Kid because he's going to leave them to their death. Like, they're, they're, they weren't really a, a gang of brothers like mm-hmm. what this song is, is saying they were, especially in this film. Like, Doc just wants to get fucking away from Billy the Kid so he could live his life, uh, not the other way around. This is, it sounds like Blood on Blood from New Jersey. Um, mm-hmm. it, it sounds like just a discarded album track. Uh, from the band this has nothing to do with the film that i can tell and it's probably my least favorite song on the record and you may be right it, it definitely doesn't feel like it, it belongs um although if i were sequencing the album as an album i definitely would have put this earlier because we needed some energy like maybe somewhere on the first side but the the feel of this song to me is more like you've been wanting the girl through the whole movie she's been resisting you and you finally get a moment together and you're just riding free on a horse in the fields and you're the wind is blowing through your hair and you're sharing this wonderful warm day together does not fit 
at all. No. And uh, I, see, I, I could see why you'd want to put it on side A, but it doesn't really fit there either if you're talking about this film. Right. Again, yeah, th- this maybe would work on Young Guns 1, where, mm. where they were more of a gang and, and, and more together. Uh, th- th- this one's much more about uh, Billy the Kid being chased down by a former friend, Pat Garrett. So, again, I think it was just John needed a song. Like, oh, I had this scrap of a song I started during the New Jersey sessions. I just flesh that out and, and tag it on there. Because even where it fits uh, in the sequence, I, I don't think really works either. And like you said, the guitar yeah. sound weird. It, it just sounds like you're, you're still like it was something I wrote during Slippery When Wet. And then mm-hmm. we just kind of threw it on this album. I don't even think it's good enough to be on Slippery One. What, what, what? <laughs> you know? uh, the 7800 Fahrenheit or something or the debut album. Right. Yeah. I, I mean, it's it's it, it has good energy to it. And I think that's that would be the reason I would move it up in the, the track selection list, just because we would we needed something with a little more energy. But I just I, honestly, I would have left it off. Yeah. Yeah. It, it doesn't be there. Yeah. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, the one thing that I'll say that was good about it was the bass line. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm a sucker for a good bass line. Oh, and that's Mr. Randy Jackson again. Pretty talented bass player, apparently. I'm going to have to go because he was, I'm pretty sure he was on Journey Escape. And that was the one that I had. That was one of the first albums I ever bought. And uh, I don't know that I've really ever paid attention to the bass on that album. So I'm going to have to go back and, and give that a revisit. I think during their their big period there, uh, Randy Jackson was the bass player back in the late 80s uh, in, in there. So, yeah. Oh, late 80s? Or mid 80s. Like whenever, you know, you're during the, uh, you know, right at the top of their heyday, right? Okay. Yeah. When, when I'll have that, to look. What year was Escape? Was that like 81? 81 or two. Yeah. Yeah. Great album, though. Absolutely. Let's talk about that one instead of Never Say Die. <laughs> the whole album instead of this one. <laughs> Well, you know, some people like to sing a song called You Really Got Me, and some people like to sing it You Really Got Me Now. This is, well, first of all, that sounded like Lemmy Kilmister, but <laughs> uh, this is the most Beatles sounding song on the soundtrack. Uh, this definitely feels like they captured it in a club that had horrible sound, but they still got a good soundboard recording out of it. Uh, I love the feel of it. It's, it's really different. Um, it feels old saloonish. Yeah, it's, it's a boogie woogie song. Like you said, it's like we got little Richard for 10 minutes before he has to take off. We're just going to set up, uh, throw up some mics and away we go. And you can hear little mistakes like John is turning away from the mic at one point to look at somebody and you, you his vocal drops or little Richard trying to sing the line, uh, but they don't recognize you with your foot out of your mouth, but he's saying it with your feet out your mouth. And it's just, a, it sounds a little goofy. Yeah, it's just like one take uh, in a saloon. It sounds very rough, but I really kind of like that because if you're walking into a bar 
and you know, just you know, setting up with like Aldo Nova on guitar, Ben Montanch is there, Kenny Aronoff is there on a little kit, and 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 John and Little Richard. Like I, I love that that feel of it. Uh, it, it's a great boogie woogie little tune. There's not a lot to it. It's only a couple minutes long. I wish they would have fleshed it out a little bit. There's like two verses, a couple of choruses with one little bridge section. And, you know, it's fairly, fairly simple, but you got little Richard to play on your record. That's pretty cool. Yeah. I, I mean, you're, you've already got Jeff Beck and Aldo Nova. Like you, you, what more do you deserve? And then you get little Richard. I mean, it just, yeah. does it get any better? Uh, I, I do love the feel of the song. I think the, the mix of it is great. I love the rawness of it. I, I love that they probably went out of their way. Like at some point, just turn away from the mic, but keep singing. And, you know, I really think they did that intentionally, but it came out great. It, it came out authentic. I think that's the thing. Like they really captured some random performance of a band in a saloon. But the song very much reminds me of Don't Bring Me Down by ELO with just with a uh, a more bluesier and bar-esque feel to it without all the production to it yeah i could see that yeah Yeah, the progression is very much the same but the backing vocals that's where i get that beatles feeling like that almost sounds like john and and, uh, paul singing together it almost sounds like hamburg like when they're playing in the cavern club or something right Mm -hmm. that kind of feel if you watch really early beatles stuff from like their hamburg days or the cavern club in liverpool that it kind of has that same vibe to it yeah i totally get that and we had some female voices in in some of these tracks i think there's two more coming up on the next song uh, doing background vocals you don't get that here, though. It's just the guys just belting out the lyrics. John and uh, Benmont, possibly, and, and Little Richard just mm-hmm. singing away, You Really Got Me Now. And it's just that cool little groovy little boogie-woogie piano number that I, I always really have a soft spot for. I dig this track. Yeah, it's a, it's a great track. And I, I was so convinced that the Beatles actually wrote this that I had to look and make sure it wasn't a cover. Really? Just because the, the backing vocals were so strong, it, it I thought maybe they sampled it from a Beatles song. Uh, it, 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 it reminds me of something. I don't know what it is, but it reminds me of some Beatles song, but the progression is what reminded me of ELO. Uh, mm-hmm. but yeah, I agree. I, I wish they would have fleshed this out, maybe done something a little bit more with it, but it's a delicate thing when you're, when you're going for a song that has that authentic feel you're leaving in mistakes, you can, you can overplay that real fast. You really can. Uh, I guess it, it, it makes sense that my favorite era of the Beatles is early Beatles from like Meet the Beatles to Rubber Soul. That's mm-hmm. that's my favorite era of the band, whereas most people say, oh, it's from Revolver on or whatever. Yeah. Uh, and so that early Beatles feel, like I said, I, I could see uh, four mop tops bring going his backwards kit and uh, everybody crowding around her mic and, and belting out, you really got me now, like they did Long Tall Sally yeah. or, or something like that. Yeah, it totally fits that vibe. And John sings it great. Little Richard's always fucking fantastic. Yeah. The band is killer. Like Jet Beck's not even on this one. That's Aldo Nova, but he's playing the hell out of it. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, it's just, uh, like I said. Give me a couple more minutes. Yeah. Oh really yeah. Or come well, on. It's it's magic, and and you just want more of it. But I I have to say too, Little Richard was very restrained on this because he isn't doing his you know because he has his his little things he does like Steven Tyler oh. does and a lot of woos and that kind of thing. And he's really really restrained on this track. He is right in the pocket. Like you said, yeah. you got no big high-pitched woos that little Richard, he would put those everywhere. Yeah. But yeah. On a John Bon Jovi song, no, how do you want me to do it? I'll just do that. But he's playing away, uh, you know, sings his verse fantastic. Uh, sounds great on the chorus. Uh, I don't know. There's not a lot to nitpick here. You could say, oh, it, it sounds like it's rough and all that, but it's supposed to. Again, this is a song that lyrically doesn't fit the the the, the film, but, mm-hmm. but just the production of it sure does. This but, is something, you, you, if Billy the Kid walked into a saloon, they they could be playing this in the film. Right. This is like the scene in a movie when you get into the car and whatever song is playing on the radio that's of that era 
is playing or you walk into the bar or the restaurant and this is what they're playing for ambient music yeah. um i lyrically that doesn't need to fit in fact it would be weird if it did yeah you know that's that's licensing for the purpose of of incidental music that just belongs in the scene but i i really like it um i i do like though the fact that little richard wasn't like look i'm little richard i'm gonna sing the way i'm gonna sing it he's singing for the song and i really respect that decision because he doesn't have to do that no he's little richard he can do whatever the hell he wants <laughs> exactly <laughs> so as we get down to our last three songs on the album this one's called bang a drum and it's basically about you know banging a drum Did he get paid by the bang a drum? <laughs> well, it, it's a prayer, and, and prayers can be repetitive, right? The, the, this is God teaching how to pray. You know, mm-hmm. bang a drum, say a prayer for the sinner, say a prayer for the sin, say a prayer for the losers, and for those who win. You're basically praying for everybody. It's it, it, it's a prayer. It works because the, there's that definite spiritual element of 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 the film too, right? Like if you're going off to meet your maker, you want to make sure that you're going to be greeted at the pearly gates, right? The, you had that element in Blaze of Glory too. Mm-hmm. Uh, here it's a little more prevalent but i went to see a preacher and he taught me how to pray and this is the prayer he taught him i think i would have enjoyed it better if it had been a uh, you know like a breakdown going into a solo or something where he did that because the whole song just feels repetitive because that's the chorus and that line is repeated i get the premise of it but just listening to the song uh as it is it just felt very repetitive for me and i thought wow this is i get it but I think this could have been structured in a way where it wasn't as monotonous. It's a gospel song. And yeah. by definition, I think gospel songs are, are, are structured that way. So I, I totally get it. It didn't bother me. Uh, I'm, I'm not a hugely religious person, but uh, there's some gospel stuff I like. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's got that country element as well. I think uh, a country artist Chris Ledoux actually covered this in the late 90s, I think, and Bon Jovi may have played on it. And it became a big hit for him. So it's you know it's definitely a country song, but it's a, it's a gospel song too. It's something that you know Bono would be singing uh, during I Still Haven't Found What I'm Looking For. <laughs> Another song that can kind of be accused of being too repetitive, right? Oh, it's yeah. Thing here. So instead of say a prayer for the sinner, say a prayer for the sin, he's saying and bang a drum. Mm-hmm. So uh, when you look at it, you know, I hear it as a gospel song. So the repetitiveness uh, doesn't really get to me. I enjoy a good uh, uplifting. It gets a little much with the big chorus of voices and the hallelujahs and the amens at the end. Uh, you, you know, if you're not inclined to, you know, think in that direction. But, right. so, you know, repetitive, sure. Uh, didn't bother me, though, because to me it fits. Uh, the aesthetic of the film. Uh, you want a kind of a big, uh, big soaring gospel song over the end of the film. I can go with that. I, I'll, I'll get behind that. Uh, probably wouldn't listen to it 
very often. If I were listening to the whole album, I would probably be inclined to skip it, to be honest. But I would probably listen to it every once in a while. I, I really like the intro where that was heading. Um, it kind of reminded me of when Robert Plant uh, started his his solo career in the 80s and songs like I'm in the Mood and and that. I thought that's actually kind of a nice Robert Plant opening. Yeah. Yeah, no, that that's a good call. I'm I'm kind of with you. Uh, I don't I don't I, I like listening to it, but not every day. Like I, yeah. I could listen to like Miracle and you really got me now and Blaze of Glory any any single day of the week. Uh this one here is a little more acquired. Like I said, it gets very preachy uh, mm-hmm. at the end with the big amens and the hallelujahs and stuff and uh, you know, I, I kind of like it more in the in the beginning here. There was more just kind of, you know, I went to see a preacher. He taught me how to pray. This is the prayer he taught me, blah, blah, blah. And then we kind of, once we get past the bridge, it gets very big, bombastic, uh, you know, Southern church type feel to it. And that that's maybe yeah. a little. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's it's just not my wheelhouse. Um, I was going to say something else too, but oh, oh uh, in contrast, one song that you would think based on what you know on my taste that I wouldn't like would be Turn, Turn, Turn by the Birds. And especially in consideration of what I just said with this song, but for some reason that song doesn't bother me. And that is like right out of scripture, uh, you know, in between the turn, turn, turns. And it, that's a very repetitive song, but it also moves a lot too. You know, this this is very repetitive because it stays in that lane a long time versus lyrically repetitive because they go short verse, short chorus. It moves a lot. Well, at the end of the song is just very much j- just the same thing over and over and over again with the big... Uh, chorus, right? Like you said, turn, turn, yeah. turn, turn a little more to it. It's it's a little more in the pocket. Where I don't know if you're like me in that second half kind of loses you this song a little bit. It's yeah. very much to hear you say, yeah, yeah, and we're doing that for like four minutes, it seems like, which is right. kind of way too long. Uh, I'm with the song up until like the first, second chorus here, and then it, it kind of loses me because it gets to be a little too much. Yeah, and it's four minutes and 44 seconds. And again, I, I I think that could have been trimmed down a little bit. But I would say if I were, again, if I were sequencing these songs in an order for a regular album release, I would probably put this last and let that chorus fade out and let that be the ending of the album. Because I think it's kind of a come together song, the way it's presented. And I think those make for great album enders. It, yeah, and it's kind of weird how the album ends because it ends on the song Dying Ain't Much of a Living. Right, which- yeah. Is kind of how the movie ends because it ends on the uh, supposed death of Billy the Kid, mm-hmm. and then uh, you have uh, we go back to present day nineteen fifty, where the lawyer's like, "I don't think you're Billy the Kid." And he kind of walks off. You see the postscript of like, "Oh, Pat Garrett, his book was a bomb, and you know he died penniless and all this kind of stuff." And it's kind of a miserable ending. Mm-hmm. So I could see why you want to maybe end the album that way. But yeah, I could, I would, it, it would make more sense to end on this song than it would yeah. on Dying Much of a Living. And Dying Much of a Living is also the song that Elton John duets on. So. Maybe that's why you saved that for the last uh, Bon Jovi song on the record, too. Sure. But it, but if we're going companion piece and we're going chronologically, of course, you go with the movie and, and it makes sense. But as a, as a producer looking at album track order, this would be a brilliant final song. But yeah. then but then, you know, the last song wouldn't make any sense at all uh, anywhere else in the soundtrack. But at the end. So it's it's kind of a tough one. But like we said, sequencing on this one is probably a real challenge because if you go chronologically, you get situations like this, like you did side A with too many ballads. Right. You got, okay, we got the big soaring song, and it's in slot. Well, essentially slot two. I don't even really consider or consider Guano City kind of a song. It's mm-hmm. a one minute snippet out of the score. Yeah. So we're talking. This is the second to last song on the album, and it should be the closer. But you see, sequence sequentially, it's not right. Yeah, it's it, this would be a tough album as a producer, I, I would have to say. But let's check out uh, our next song. It's called Dying Ain't Much of a Living. And boy, that's that's pretty accurate. 
can sing low and sound great without emphasizing and taking it to that level every song he sounds i think this is one of his best performances on the album uh second to maybe blaze of glory i agree with you maybe it's because he has elton john with him on the chorus there he's like i gotta i, I don't want to soar above elton john like nobody does that so I, I gotta i gotta keep it on the download for for good old reg could you imagine flying elton john in from england and he gets his part and he's like yeah we just need you on the chorus <laughs> <laughs> yeah Plunk away at the piano. I don't care what you play. I, I just need your voice in the chorus. Yeah. And he's like, did you give Little Richard a lead? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you gave him a whole verse, motherfucker. I heard. <laughs> I think this is a beautiful song. I love the ghost notes on the snare. I think they really add a huge dynamic to the song. But the 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 way that they're using it, it might be the, the keyboard and the reverb, but it feels very 80s rock to me. It, yeah. it has that feel to it. It does, yeah. Uh, and again, I'm, I'm thinking in terms of the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, great song for the end of the movie right uh, dining much of a living uh is it too late to ask forgiveness for all the things that i have done dining much of a living for the young very very prominent for the end of the film when you know they're uh, in santa fe and billy you know uh, pat garrett's caught up to him and and billy kind of realizes maybe he's at the end of his road here he doesn't see much of a way out mm-hmm. and, and so that's lyrically it's a very good refrain dining much of a living and like it sounds very good it does sound like, it, you know, 80s. It was 80s. This is 1990. We're just coming out of the whole right. uh, glad metal scene, right? So you're going to have that kind of twinge to it. I can certainly... It doesn't date it for me, though. Uh, I still get yeah. enough Western influence in the melody and, and the piano and stuff. Mm-hmm. that it, You know, th- this album doesn't sound dated to me at all. Maybe the last song a little bit, because you don't really get a lot of big gospel songs in rock anymore. Right. So that maybe kind of dates it. But this one here, uh, it always kind of worked for me. I, I really do like this song. It's a tough song to end an album on, mm-hmm. but... It works for the film. Yeah, I think it just felt a little bit earlier 80s to me than the rest of the album. So when it first started, it kind of threw me a bit. I think there was one song on the first side that had a similar feeling to it. It might be Miracle, I think, had a little bit of that feeling to it. So it's probably the keyboard more than anything else. Uh, but I thought it was a it was a good song. What I'm kind of surprised at, and I don't know the history of this song, but I'm kind of surprised that there wasn't a lawsuit over this one. Because the first thing that came to mind, even more than the ELO reference I gave earlier, was a song from 1977 by Debbie Boone called You Light Up My Life. Very, very similar progression. And to to the point where I I was like, I know this song. I know this song. And it took me a, a few minutes to figure out what it was I was hearing. And then I went and pulled up Debbie Boone's studio version. And sure enough, yeah, it's very similar in progression. Well, I don't think uh, a lot of times uh, bands will do that. and They'll credit the original writer. Like I, I wrote this great progression. Oh shit. That's from a song I heard. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I just give them credit, 
but they don't give credit to, to Debbie Boone or any of her writers on this. And far as I know, uh, I'm way out of my element on that. Like when I, when I hear Ghostbusters, I don't hear, I want a new drug. If I right. kind of push myself to, I do. And mm-hmm. I, I don't know you a lot of my life that well. So I, I couldn't say that that really stuck out to me, but if she wanted to, maybe like chord progressions are so hard to prove. And we had the, the whole big Led Zeppelin lawsuit that just wrapped up this past year. Right. Yeah, and, finally, after, what, 20 years? God, it took forever, right? But it's, it's kind of the same thing. Like, like, how do you prove that, you know, you're ripping off a song you heard uh, in a chord progression? Like, uh, mm-hmm. that would have been so hard to, to litigate, uh, I would think, that maybe Debbie Boone just said, fuck it. And, and that could be. It, it could. It, usually it's not even the artist. It's the record company or the publishers, that, you know, whoever owns the rights are usually the ones that go after it. In fact, there was a, a quote uh, from Bar- Brian May that I saw recently that said the whole, uh, you know, under pressure, ice, ice baby thing. He said they didn't want to deal with that. They didn't care. It was the record company that pushed that lawsuit. And it doesn't surprise me because there's a thing now where uh, uh, fans are taping uh, things on their phone from Queen concerts, like little snippets of the show. And putting them on their YouTube to share with everybody. And the record company's taking them down. Yeah. And Brad May's like, that's not coming from us. We're trying to get all that stuff put back up for you guys. We don't care. We want you to go ahead, film. We don't yeah. care. Like you're, you're, you're sharing a, a fan moment with other fans. Like there's nothing wrong with that. A lot of times this stuff isn't coming from the bands. Like right. you said, it's coming from the publishing owners and the record companies because bands a lot of times are, I think would be cool. Like you, you want to tape uh, 15 uh, seconds out of my song and put it on YouTube? Do it. Well, and that's that's why I didn't put the Magicians podcast on YouTube and why any of my review shows don't go on YouTube is because their algorithms will filter that. And uh, just as an experiment, I started throwing up the first season of, of the Magicians podcast when I covered uh, Very Every, Very Very Humble. And uh, I would get a copyright notice, but it wouldn't count as a violation because the way those publishers said it was, you can use this material but any monetization on that episode comes to us. Okay. So if there's an ad that plays or whatever. So it's it's more of a, they're agreeing to fair use almost. Um, but it, like Nate and John on the Deep Purple podcast, they've had uh, obscure songs, uh, bonus album tracks and things that will kill their episode. But yet you go on and there's 18 other versions of that that are played in full that are available on YouTube. It is a lot of that makes no sense. It's, but it's all it's not people sitting there listening to it. This is all computer generated monitors that search for song patterns and things. Um, but in the case of Debbie Boone, I mean, I don't know if she ever heard the song, uh, you know, or, or whatever. She may have decided it wasn't worth it. But it's it's the vocal progression that really just honed it into that song for me. And I might be the only one in the world that hears it that way, to be fair. Now I got to go listen to Debbie Boone, which I never wanted to do. So thanks for that. <laughs> but it, it, it's weird. Yeah. Sometimes it'll, it'll just, you know, immediately harken back to something for you. Whereas mm-hmm. like when I heard Ghostbusters, I didn't hear I want a new drug until I actually kind of, you know, played the two like right after another. Oh yeah, I get that part there. Yeah. that That's the part. And then that became a big lawsuit and Ray Parker Jr. had to, you know, give so much money. I think just recently actually, uh, U2's new song, uh, Atomic City, I, I think borrowed from something that they, they had heard before, and they just credited the writer. So now that writer gets some some royalties from it. When if if U2 was ever going to make money from that shitty song, well, yeah, and and think about the writer. If you can just get royalties off of U2's sales instead of getting a one time settlement or whatever, you're just going to go with the royalties. You know what? You guys are a huge selling band. Just keep the checks coming. I don't care. Yeah, you want to put my name on it and use my stuff? Knock yourself out because I'm making more money when you release the song than when I do. That's the one they did the video here on Fremont Street, wasn't it? It is, yeah. I, I think yeah. it was that song. Uh, the, the, they've done that a couple times where they like wrote a song 
Uh, it's almost kind of like uh, we were doing the uh, Aerosmith show last night on Come Together. Mm-hmm. And uh, John Lennon came in saying, oh, I got this thing. And he played it. And Paul McCartney's like, no, that's a Chuck Berry song. Right. So we got to change it or we got to credit Chuck Berry on the song, too, and give him some money. So I think it was just easier to slow down the tempo and change it a bit. <laughs> yeah. And, and he had to have known because of that opening lyric about oh, exactly. Flat Top. I mean, he had to have. But it's like uh, you're walking through, uh, walking around in your head and you 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 play a tune in your head like, oh, I just came up with that. That's brilliant. And, and then you realize you heard it from some. I did that. I thought uh, there, I, I actually got like a melody in my head. I should actually maybe try and write this. And it turned out it was from a Nirvana song I heard like 10 years ago. Yeah, I've done that. I've gotten three quarters of the way through a song going, wow, how has this not been a, oh, <laughs> it is <laughs> crap. <laughs> Next. <laughs> it's so frustrating, too, because you think you're being original, but you've heard, I mean, there's so many things that are subliminal that come out in writing that you don't even know right. most of the time. But when you can identify it specifically as something, now you're just screwed. Um, but no, they, the uh, the Atomic City thing, well, we're, we're known because we have the uh, Atomic Bar that's off of Fremont Street, not near where all the hotels and stuff are, it's down the road a ways. And that's where they used to sit and watch the nuclear testing. So that that would make sense that they did that one here. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, I, I like the song. I, I really do. I think it's it's got a great feel to it. Again, I mean, you you can't go wrong with a Bon Jovi vocal as far as passion, uh, making you feel like whatever stories he, he's telling you is he's living right now. He's a master at that. Yeah. And I mean, uh, Elton John, a great duet partner because yeah. he's never going to overplay or oversing anything. And he's just right where he needs to be. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of like Little Richard was on the other track, but you, you look at all of his duets, whether it be with uh, Billy Joel or whoever, George Michael, even. Uh, you know, he he does what he services the song so very well. It, uh, for the longest time, I didn't know Elton John was on this track when I first got the cassette. Until you read the liner notes, like Elton John, what the fuck? Is he just playing piano? But no, that that's actually his voice on the chorus too. But they, it blends in so well with John's voice, and John's not overpowering him, and he's not overpowering John. It worked really well. Yeah, it's it's really brilliant. I, I have to say, uh, I would not have thought if I was producing this album, I, I don't know. I would have thought we need Elton John on a track. I don't know how they came to that conclusion, because, again, not really his style of music. Yeah, I think maybe just John wrote a list of uh, people he always wanted to uh, work with. And uh, Elton John maybe was on that list. And he called him up. And he said, yeah, sure. I'm coming mm-hmm. through on a tour or what have you. And I, I can go into the studio for an afternoon. Kind of makes me wonder what the budget was, too, because this is kind of an odd album. So how do you even say, OK, we as a record company backing this, we think we can make X amount of money on it. So we're willing to throw this um, this much in it. How do you even know what you can make on a companion album to a movie when companion albums weren't even a thing? Companion albums used to be there was the. Uh, musical score album that would come out. And then the companion album would be the album that had parts of the score and parts of the dialogue, uh, which I had like a star Wars album that had a lot of the dialogue and some of the music in it. Those were the companion albums back in the day. There was nothing like this. Oh, but uh, there was something on this and that's the words Bon Jovi. They were the biggest band in the world at this time. So Mercury, very, very happy to put out a Bon Jovi product. Even if it was just John. Because he was the biggest rock star in the world uh, in 1990, yeah. arguably. He was right up there, right? So uh, anything with his name on it, especially coming off in New Jersey, that was a huge, huge record. That's true. Huge tours. So, yeah, they were more than happy to put out a Bon Jovi product. Are you kidding? And it, it went number one. Like, the album, I think, was number one. Blaze of Glory hit number one. The the, the track, uh, Miracle, I think, was top 10 or top 12 something. Mm-hmm. So it was a fairly sizable hit, too. Yeah. So, absolutely, it, if I'm Mercury and John Bon Jovi comes in with a with a cassette saying, "Here's my next album," put it out. We're ready. 
Was was uh, slippery when wet bigger than um, New Jersey? Sales wise, yeah. That's a good question. I'm not sure. Because uh, I I, th- I thought slippery when wet was in the top fifty, but it might have been New Jersey, like all time. Right. I'm I'm just going to take a quick second and look that up. Yeah, I know I've seen it. Um, I just can't remember the stat. Well, while you're looking that up, I got to go ahead. Oh, <laughs> slippery when wet was uh, twelve times platinum, uh, which is diamond in the U.S. New Jersey was seven times platinum. Uh, yeah, Slippery Wood had almost doubled uh, New Jersey. Wait, look at his career was just dying. <laughs> <laughs> well, the, the next one was only two times platinum, and then platinum for the next one, and then, oh, they went back up to two times platinum, then gold, and then he hasn't sniffed. Wow. That's weird, because I, I will agree, Slippery Wood Wet was a fantastic album, but you know what? So was New Jersey. Yeah. I'm surprised there's that vast of a difference, especially because he was, like you said, one of the one of, if not the biggest artist at the time. Yet his album didn't even sell half of what the the previous one did. That's weird. You know what? More competition too. Remember, Slippery came out in '86. True. Uh, so you know, less of these bands were around and recording at that time. Whereas in '88, when New Jersey came out, they're everywhere. Uh, but yeah. it's, you know, that had Bad Medicine, Born to Be My Baby, I'll Be There for You, Living in Sin. Big songs, but not living on a prayer big, not wanted dead or alive big. Slippery had bigger singles, only three of them, but it had the much bigger songs on them. Right. And also it was new. Yeah. You know, a lot of people will buy the first album and then they, they do what I do and they just kind of drop off from a band for no reason whatsoever. You're like, oh yeah, that's good. I should get that. But then you, you also have the added factor now of, of uh, constant radio play. And I think radio play can kill album sales as much as it can generate album sales because you get excited about the single, but if it's on every time you turn on the radio, you don't need to buy the album. That's true. Remember, and this is the day where you, you know you can just download whatever song you want. You had to buy the album, right? So everybody yeah. was the cassette in the in the LP uh, mm-hmm. of New Jersey. Uh, it was a big, like seven times platinum is nothing to sneeze at. Uh, that's you know seven million records sold. <laughs> yeah, I, I'm saying that as if it's if it is it if it's not successful. Yeah, but the fact now. is, I mean, yeah, how how dare I? But just I mean, just looking at comparatively between the two. Yeah. You know, well, let's check out our last track. This is called Guano City. Sounds, sounds lovely. <laughs> If you want to know how it ends, you got to buy the album or find it on some streaming service. Um, this really feels more like a, an opening theme song than something at the end, because it's kind of building up to action. It really feels more like it's setting the scene than ending the movie. It's really kind of a weird end of the album in, yeah. in a lot of ways. And it, it sounds very Alan Silvestri. 
mm-hmm. who's a great composer, but uh, he's one I could pick out of a police lineup because he's kind of like John Williams. There's those little things that only he does. It's very much Back to the Future, very mm-hmm. much Forrest Gump, The Avengers. He did all those movies. Uh, it it, it kind of takes me right back there. Kind of an odd choice, I think, for a Western, even though he's done a Western before he did uh, The Quick and the Dead uh, by Sam Raimi. But yeah, the, this is a very kind of uplifting orchestral type score that, yeah, f- you know, leading into like, you know, Marty McFly trying to get away from the bully on the skateboard and he grabs onto the bumper of the manure truck. Right. Uh, it's off, right? Yeah. Yeah. A, kind of an odd way to end the record. I'm glad they put a little Alan Silvestri on there because I really like him as a composer and I think he's underrated, mm-hmm. but kind of an odd choice. I, yeah, and I think if they would have put it at the beginning to set the tone for the album where the piece feels like it belongs just musically, uh, I think people would have gotten the wrong impression of the album. Yeah, nope, very good point. And uh, I, like I said, I'm really appreciative that they put it on there. But yeah, it really should have been at the head of the of the, of the soundtrack and not at the end. It ended off with, with John and Elton singing Dying Ain't Much of a Living. Yeah, I, I agree. I think either that or um, Bang a Drum, e- either one of those could have ended the album beautifully. But overall, I, I mean, I have to say, I really like this this album. Um, I hate I, I hate the idea of calling it a soundtrack because it's really not a soundtrack. Right, a companion album, I think, is really the right term for it. But there's a lot of great stuff on here. Not every song was a was a hundred percent hit for me, but I was able to find something good in every song. And uh, overall, I I really liked it. I'm glad you picked this album for us to review. Oh, hey, I, I got one right finally. Maybe I'll be invited back here. Maybe I won't because I picked an album you actually liked. So, well, yeah, that's true. I have no use for you now. Um, <laughs> you're not challenging me enough, Corey. No, I think it's great. I, I I like the idea of this. I wish there were more albums like this out there because I think it's it's really fun to. I mean, I know there's there's songs that are inspired by movies and albums that are inspired by books and things like that, but I, I there could be so much more. I think that's a really untapped market and maybe it's just not something that commercially would be accepted but as an artist and as a fan of music i would definitely be in- interested in that and you know i i think the uh, the black panther uh, soundtrack uh had that whereas uh, kendrick lamar i think it was did a whole kind of companion album not a soundtrack mm-hmm. but just songs inspired by the movie and it was a huge hit so there there is an appetite for that too if you get a, a talented artist and a film that they're passionate about and and, and to write music for it uh, it's going to be huge. Uh, the Barbie soundtrack had a few of those songs that I think Billie Eilish did a song on there and a few others. And, you know, that was a pretty big soundtrack uh, from just this past summer. So mm-hmm. yeah, absolutely. We need to see more of this, like, you know, be inspired by by the films, just like the filmmakers are inspired by music when, when they're creating these movies. Right. You know, it, it's cyclical or circular, right? Uh, mm-hmm. You know. Yeah, absolutely. I, I'm thinking uh, to songs like uh, Misery Loves Company by Anthrax, which was inspired by the movie Misery. Um, not not an entire album, but one song. Yeah. And, you know, it's kind of neat to have Anthrax inspired by your your story <laughs> and have them doing a song about Kathy Bates. You know, Rob Ryder can hang his hat on that. Like, hey, one of my movies inspired Anthrax. There you go. That's right. And by the way, guys, uh, for you, those of you listening that listen to my John Barber episode talking about uh, the assassination of John F. Kennedy, there is a wonderful podcast that is being done by Rob Reiner right now. Uh, it's it's uh, still going, and it's about the assassination of JFK, of course, because it's the 60th anniversary, so it's like the right time to finally talk about all this stuff. And a lot of people also have had recent deathbed confessions, and, you know, oh, I never paid attention to that, even though it's one of the biggest controversies in our nation's history. <laughs> that's what, out. It's just never gone away. Like, I just yeah. watched a, uh, a new documentary from Oliver Stone. Uh, JFK revisited where he's, mm-hmm. he goes through some of the, the new evidence that's come out and the new uh, conclusions that have been reached and stuff. And 
it's just never gone away ever since it happened. Yeah, I haven't seen his yet. I'm kind of I want to wait until I'm done with Rob Reiner's and see what he has to say because I've been following it every week. It happened to start right around the time I interviewed John Barber. So um, yes, I, I've reached out to John. We're just uh, I'm just waiting to hear back on him to schedule his follow up. But uh, yeah, he's a fascinating guy. Absolutely fascinating in all the work that he did with Jim Garrison. To, of course, Jim Garrison was portrayed by Kevin Costner in Oliver Stone's movie. So it all comes back full circle. But yeah, um, the uh, the only song that I know of that was inspired uh, by that was probably Bullet by the Misfits, which was not the um, the most politically correct song. <laughs> I'm not a big Misfits listener, so I, I'm not familiar with that one. Uh, you have to have a really I don't care about anything kind of mindset to listen to those lyrics and be okay with it. Okay. <laughs> it's it's punk music. I'll I'll say that. And punk had a tendency to uh kind of just find the grain to go against and then really go against it as, as much as it could. Uh, bless their hearts for doing that. But uh no, overall, I, I gotta say this is a, a great piece of music. I, I really love or I, I should say a great piece of history. I love the sound of it. I love that it it had a little bit of a Western twang to it, but it also felt like Bon Jovi at the same time. It it really kind of bridged a gap. Yep, 100%. And I would uh, recommend getting it on vinyl. Sounds fantastic on the old record player. Uh, I've spun it quite a few times this week and enjoyed it every single time. Yeah. Uh, did they release it as a 180 gram yet? Uh, no, I don't think so. Yeah. I don't know if they will with a lot of the soundtracks. Unless it's John Williams, I don't know if a lot of those are going to happen. Okay, and this is more considered a John Bon Jovi solo record, not a soundtrack. Like True. you said, it's a companion album. So uh, I don't think any of his solo stuff has been reissued. Uh, obviously, the Bon Jovi stuff has. So uh, who knows? Uh, maybe when John finally hangs them up and they kind of go through the back catalog, oh, we could re-release uh, Blaze of Glory. Maybe maybe there's a couple of uh, things that didn't quite make the the record that they could put on there. Maybe a little more album. You know, put on another disc. Maybe yeah. Make a double album. Put on more of the more of the score. Maybe a couple songs that didn't make the cut, if there were any. I don't know. Yeah, I would definitely be very curious if there was anything on the cutting room floor for this album, because I, I, I would say there's probably a couple of choices that they could have potentially made to not put on the album instead of whatever else they might have had. But uh, even even saying that overall, great, great record. Totally agree. Takes me back to my childhood in 1990. Uh, I would graduate two years later. But uh, the, the, this cassette uh, you know, never left my tape deck. And I think I told you the story. I actually wore the typeface. Uh, off the cassette i was popping it in and out of the tape deck so many times you can even read what the cassette was anymore so people kind of go through my little thing and grab oh what's this blank one well that's blaze of glory mm -hmm. i had a few of those records uh in, in my tape case back in the day this was one of them i know i wore the the words off of some of my cassettes because i was a huge cassette guy during that time um and i think probably for me it would have been uh white snake come and get it that's a good my, my favorite White Snake album. That definitely had nothing left on it by the time that tape broke. I know my Long Cold Winter did have much on it. Uh, mm -hmm. My Def Leppard Hysteria and Pyromania, for that matter, didn't have uh, a lot of typeface left on it. So, yeah. Great albums for sure. Well, thank you so much, Corey, for, for joining me on this. Everybody, check Corey out on the Ultimate Catalog Clash on And the Podcast Will Rock on Backtracks Aerosmith Revisited. Lots of great shows you got going. And, uh, you know, we've, we've got the uh, theme music show is archived for now, available, all the episodes that were done. Another great show. Uh, you're just a podcasting maniac. That's right. And I'm back in, 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 the, uh, in the canyons of Santa Fe, uh, getting ready to hop on my horse and then take the Blackbird Trail down to Mexico. So thanks a lot for having me on the show, Scott. 
You know, a steel horse does not get great mileage. True that. True that. <laughs> well, thanks, Corey. You'll have to come back and we'll uh, pick another album at some time and uh, we'll do something else. Actually, I think you're going to be back hopefully reasonably soon. We just have to get it all scheduled. Yes, I'm looking forward to that. And, you know, we just named a couple of records that you said you're a fan of, too, in Pyromanian Hysteria. We can maybe talk a little Def Leppard. I know none of my other podcast partners want to, so. Oh, yeah, I'll talk about some Def Leppard. Those are really the only two albums I know. I think I first, uh, what was the song they had on High and Dry that was really good? Um, well, there was Let It Go. Let It Go was Pyromania. The one off of oh, High and Dry was Bring It On The Heartbreak. Was the that's one. the one. Yeah, that that was the first one I heard from Def Leppard. And then uh, when Pyromania came out, I think I got that off of my Columbia House membership. Oh, yeah. Remember those good old days? <laughs> Ten sets for a penny, of course. I, I wish I had taken more advantage of that. I was always afraid that I wasn't going to be able to have the money to come up with, like, and they were going to send people after me and take my records. <laughs> you know, because you because the the ones that they gave you, like, they gave you thirteen for a penny, and then they jack up the prices on the four that you have to buy. But yep. you still come out so far ahead. But I was always terrified to get to to make the commitment because I was afraid I wasn't going to have enough money to to do the other ones. And then it would be like I was stealing from them. I was always afraid that I would forget to send the thing back when I didn't want the monthly one sent. And that happened oh. once all of a sudden in the mail, I get a, like a copy of Prince under the cherry moon. I'm like, I didn't want that one. <laughs> and to think you could probably sell that for $80, $80 or $800 now. Probably. <laughs> ah, bummer. Well, we did what we did. And we we live. This is the generation that drank out of the water hose. So there you go. At least we were smart enough to make sure there were no bees in it first. <laughs> I'll just say that. Well, thank you, Corey, for joining me once again. Uh, I don't know if I have any interviews coming up on Saturday. If not, we'll be back for our normal Wednesday episode on the Haskin Cast podcast. Cheers. And try not to find yourself stuck in a pickle barrel. <laughs> Where the greatest punishments come alive. <laughs>